I still thought it was a good time to buy. So I kept stepping in front of this freight train bond market, thinking that obviously I was at least as smart, maybe smarter than the rest of the bond market, and basically got run over. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. To join me, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and sign up for my free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter where I share how to reduce risks and create, grow, and protect your wealth. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy, and I'm here with featured guest, Veneer Bansali. Veneer, are you ready to join the mission? Absolutely. Thank you, Andrew. I'm excited to have you on, particularly because, you know, I mean, this show is all about reducing risk. And I think the audience is going to find your background quite interesting. So Veneer Bansali is the CIO of Longtail Alpha. The firm was founded in 2015 to help provide risk mitigation strategies. Veneer was a partner at PIMCO and started their first hedge fund and also started and managed their quantitative investment portfolio teams from 2000 to 2015. He has a PhD in theoretical physics from Harvard University and has written six books on finance. He has also run over 60 ultra marathons and he is also an airline transport pilot rated to fly jets and helicopters and has over 4,500 hours of flight time veneer. My definition of your bio is also, and he is also ultra marathon. Take a minute and tell us about the unique value that you're bringing to this wonderful world. Well, I think you know I've done a lot of different things in my life, from physics to running to investing. And I think what that does, especially with some of the things we're going to talk about, the uh, worst trades that I've done, many of them, each better than the other or each worse than the other. I think it gives you, and gives me especially, a very interesting perspective on the commonality between different aspects of our life. And, you know, I think stepping back, I can probably see a lot of the economic and market cycles unfolding now that I've been doing this for a long time. And some of the time it's just paying attention to those signals and the common sense to actually manage risk. So I think if there's one thing I guess I have from doing a lot of different things is the ability to bring a more unified perspective to investing than maybe somebody who's only spent time doing investing and nothing else would. You know, when I was a young guy, I saw someone like you and I would think, holy crap, I can't do finance because this guy's got a PhD in theoretical physics. You know, I got to be a brain surgeon. I've got to be a rocket scientist. I've got to be a physicist. But based upon kind of, you know, you've, you've seen the all sides of finance. And I'm just curious, like for a young person that may be intimidated at times that there's really, really bright minds out there. Is there hope? Is there opportunity for that person to find their place in the world of finance? Oh, absolutely. I think there's more hope than ever. And the reason is that the barriers to entry in finance have gone down. So anybody who has the desire, really, that comes from desire and the motivation, the ability to work really, really hard and actually really enjoy finance, not just from the fact of it helps you make money, obviously, uh, if you're if you're good at it, but also that it's probably the only field where you're self-disciplined 
is tax. So I tell my colleagues and my employees that probably the most important thing to succeed in finance is not your educational background, but how much common sense you have and how much persistence you have, how much perseverance you have and how curious you are and whether you really like this field for all the intrinsic mysteries it offers you. And then finally, self-discipline, of course, self-discipline, which we'll talk about a little bit when I talk about the the trades or my worst trade is absolutely critical. So finance teaches you to be disciplined. Mm. There's a lot of hope for sure. Yeah. And, you know, I want to take the time in this episode to talk a little bit generally about risk management, since you've got such expertise in it. And I want to kind of look at it from a simple perspective, but if I think about the typical person who's not, let's say, necessarily that sophisticated, but they've built, they build a portfolio at a broker or they're building a portfolio over time and they're following the guidelines of diversifying their equity position. So they've got, let's say, 10, 15, 20 stocks, whatever that number is for an individual. And then they are trying to diversify across industries by not being too overexposed to any one industry. And they're even trying to diversify against across countries or currencies by having a few countries, companies from different countries. They've, they've built a pretty diversified equity portfolio, let's say. They've done a good job with that. What do you think is the next step for someone like that to think about risk management? How do they or should they do anything more with that equity portfolio? And let's say that they have a long period of time. They got 20, 30 years that they're investing for. What are your thoughts about how they should think about the first step of risk management? Yeah, that's a brilliant question and probably the most important question. So if you have a long horizon, especially important for you in order to reach your goals, and obviously being in equities, you compound growth, you compound the benefit of the economy, global economy growing and so on. So equities have been and will most likely continue to be the best long-term asset class for compounding returns because uh, people go to work and companies grow, bad companies go out of business, good companies take their place. So the, in generally, generally speaking, equity markets are the place to be. Now, the big risk with equity investing is if you don't do it just in the exact right scaling, as we call it, or right size, then the volatility of the markets, which is almost as obvious and maybe even a counterpoint or the other side of the coin of the fact that equity markets tend to go up and make money over a long period of time, is that there will be risk. There will be risk. Markets will be volatile. Markets will draw down very significantly, like we saw in 2022. And that's not just a statistical aberration or an event that you shouldn't expect. That should be something that you should expect. Mm. The biggest thing that an investor can do is to be scaled or have a position or have other mechanisms in their portfolio. So in those bad events, in those bad periods, they don't panic and end up doing the wrong thing, which is liquidate at the wrong time. So to me, risk management, especially if you're an individual investor, looking to compound the value of your assets over a long period of time. It's all about never being in a position where you get forced to make a suboptimal or wrong or bad heat of the moment decision. Mm. And risk management is about building enough discipline, enough tools in your portfolio, maybe even having a less than perfect portfolio sometimes so that you can weather the storm because the storms will come. So that's probably my most important message to investors when they 
think about risk management. Everything else is a product. Everything else yeah. are basically is tools, but conceptually, that's probably the most important thing. Yeah, it's great. Don't get stopped out. Yeah, and it's great, great point is that, you know, it's about, it's not so much about I buy this instrument or that thing, or I, oh, you know, I, I try to hedge this or that. It's, it sounds like what you're talking about is like the mindset and the preparation for when you go in so that when the tough time comes, you don't freak out and say, I got to get out, which is just the worst thing to do. And so in that sense, what you're saying, and you were mentioning about kind of self-control or self-discipline, that it's such an emotional game. And I guess that's one of the reasons why that young person that says, I want to work in finance, but I'm I'm not a genius in physics or something like that. Well, you know, there's a place for people that can control their emotion and understand and think clearly in a time of crisis. And one of the, the things I, I was would be curious to hear your answer to this funny question that I'm going to ask is that Imagine that somebody got hit in the head by a baseball bat when they were young. Now they survived and they were fine. But the only thing that happened is that they really didn't have an emotional reaction to charts and graphs and numbers going up and down. So they were building their portfolio. They had their 20 stocks. They were well diversified and all that. And the market was down 50% and it didn't bother them at all. And it was up 100% or whatever that was. It didn't bother them at all. They just stayed the course. Is the best thing for that, if that person had that ability to kind of stay the course and they've positioned their portfolio carefully, you know, so let's say we're not, we're not at risk in the portfolio of the equity, individual equity position so much, but is the best thing for that person just to would that person have the best performance over the long term or should they be doing something to try to add to that performance? I'm just curious what your thoughts are. Yeah. So, you know, the way I think about it is that if a person is completely unemotional, this, uh, in academia, it's the rational investor or risk neutral pricer who does not ever hedge, but is always rational, never panics, never has bouts of greed and fear and so on. Well, that investor doesn't really exist, but obviously they're gradations. So the person in, in the case, the example that you mentioned is a person who does not have any fear, in my view, has obviously a good chance to succeed because they don't panic, mm. so they can stay the course. But they also have a very high chance of probably going bankrupt because a fear is a survival mechanism. So it's somewhere down there in our reptilian brain. And I think there's been a lot of fMRI research and psychological research that yep. shows that uh, fear and greed or pain and pleasure, et cetera, are related and they trigger basically the same part of the brain. So fear serves a purpose. And the fear of fear serves a purpose because it allows you to position your portfolio so that you don't end up in that forward bad position. Mm. So I think a little healthy dose of fear is good for everybody. But in the case of your you know, perfect rational investor. There's another aspect that they need to be careful about is that all investing has some degree of forecasting involved with it. So you have to, whenever you take a view, you have a forecast of what the expected return is or what the risk is. And markets are very noisy. You always have a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of noise around the signal. So you're never perfect. And it's very easy to make errors. And if you don't have a healthy degree of fear of making errors and hence scaling down your positions or controlling your risk, the errors will sooner or later 
end up causing a pretty big disaster. But part of our risk management strategy is to say, not only do we cover um, you know, potentially the risk of these bad events, but they also cover the risk of not being able to forecast perfectly. So a perfectly rational investor still is subject to not being able to forecast the markets perfectly. Mm. Hence, they need to have a healthy dose of uh, skepticism or, um, I guess, risk management discipline in their portfolio construction. And the last point about risk that I wanted to ask you about and think about is that I wrote a, a book called How to Start Building Your Wealth, Investing in the Stock Market, which I wrote it for women. And I wrote it for five women. And the five women are my five nieces. And when they turned 18, I gave them each $3,000. And I said, okay, we're going to invest this. And I got them into an account at Vanguard and showed them you know, how to invest. But one of the risks that I talked to them about is what I called, I guess it's called shortfall risk, where you thought you were safe by keeping your money in the bank. Like you say, I, I'm not, I don't have a high risk tolerance. Therefore, I hold bonds and cash. Well, sorry, there's a cost to everything and there is no free ride or free lunch. And if you decide that you're going to construct a, what you call, or your advisor will call a low risk portfolio, you're exposing yourself to shortfall risk that in 20, 30, 40 years from now, you're not going to have made enough of a return to even outpace inflation. And as a result, you're going to be in trouble when it comes time to to retire, let's say. And I'm just curious because when all of my career, I've, you hear very little about shortfall risk, but you hear all of these people in their institutions and their checklists to make sure that you realize that a lot of risk management in companies like banks is actually covering the bank's risk, not yours. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just curious your thoughts about is shortfall risk a real thing and how does someone protect themselves from that? Yeah, I think it's it's definitely a risk. And I think there's been a lot of research on the topic that as people live longer, it's basically related to longevity risk because as people live longer, they come to a point when they want to retire and they find that either because of inflation or something else, because of a severe drawdown in the markets, which resulted in them panicking and selling assets at the wrong time. They don't have enough money now to survive at a level that they were used to surviving. So Indeed, shortfall risk is a very, very important risk. And, and people have devised you know, various techniques to control it. I used to run some strategies when I was at PIMCO on what are now called target date funds. But within those target date funds, depending on, on what vintage you invested in, you could see different levels of shortfall risk. And one thing was for very sure is that if you were in a really short-dated target date funds, i.e. you were very close to retirement and you didn't have time for wealth to compound, you wanted to have more in safe assets like bonds and so on, which is what we were talking about, because you know uh, the time for you to retire and having some sort of definite savings was close by. But if you are really far off from retirement, then the problem is exactly the opposite. The problem is that inflation might erode the value of the bonds. Hence, more important for you is to make sure that you keep up with the growth. So you need to have more equities and having more equities doesn't necessarily guarantee that when you come to retirement, you'll have more money, i.e. you won't have shortfall risk because during the path of here to retirement, you might end up in a situation where you have a 50, 60, 70% drawdown in the markets. And at that point in time, 
like we were talking about before, you cannot panic and sell your growth assets. So you need to have either extremely strong discipline, i.e. you don't do that and you believe in the future, or which is what we specialize in, you use the tools that are available in the market to actually prevent you almost contractually from panicking, i.e. something like a put option or you know, various variations of it. So you can do some simple things, pre-commit to a set of rules or decision points so that you don't find yourself in a situation 20, 30, 40 years from now where despite your best judgments, you ended up in a situation where you had shortfall. So it can very much be managed. It is very much an important risk and it should be managed. And that's part of the reason I decided to start this firm about seven years ago, because this is not an exotic problem. This is a common problem for everybody. Mm, mm, fantastic. And just to summarize this discussion for the listeners and myself, one of the, my big takeaways from what you've just said is that risk management is more than just a tool. It's kind of a state of mind. It's understanding what the true risk is. And that is, you know, what am I going to do when things are horrific? And how do I prevent myself from panicking? And that that's interesting because a lot of people, when we talk about risk, we think about an instrument, we think about cash, we think about bonds. You know, I thought for sure that's what you were going to say, but you came back with what is a state of mind. And the second part that I think I get from it, and it reminds me of the book by Jason Zweig, which was called Your Money and Your Brain. And I felt like that was a seminal book for me because it made me realize that investing is actually a physical activity and that their fear actually triggers, as you explain, a part of your brain that's triggered by cocaine or other things, you know, and that the dopamine hit and the pain and the pleasure parts of the brain actually make investing a physical activity. Absolutely. And that's what I got from that book. So that would be my summary of what you've just taught us right there. Anything you would add to that? Yeah, I think exactly well said. And, you know, fight and flight or fight and flight response when you're faced in the jungle by a predator, uh, you have two choices. You can either stand your ground or you can cut your losses and run away. And and in the markets, we see that all the time. I mean, I do that still. I've been mm -hmm. doing this for 35 years is the response to a bad trade is to double down or say, well, that was a bad trade. And think about how many times that kind of bad trade led you into more trouble if you decided to double down and say, maybe this is one time where I just got to take my losses. And I think the physical training, the physical response to fear of loss is very similar. And that's why, in my view, trading is probably the closest we can come to in today's civilized society to uh, you know what probably a prehistoric man lived their life in the jungle. Because the market is a predator every single day, and you have to have a very rational way of dealing with it. Oh, uh, I never, I never heard that before, and I love that the market is a predator. I think one of the things I love about the stock market is it's like the last place for, I'll call it science, but what I mean by that is it's the last place where you can bring your hypothesis and test it. And so, for instance, if somebody out there has the opinion that, you know, it's good to walk backwards every morning, you know, for an hour, great, great, you know, could be somebody else has an opinion that for health, it's important to have more weight on your body, right? Like that's good for health. 
or somebody may have the opinion that the world is flat or whatever. Those You can have any opinion and you can actually live your life in a bubble where you could be even reinforced. You could find people that will reinforce that opinion, even though factually that opinion may not really stand up to factual or scientific rigor. But the stock market happens to be a place where it is a predator. And what is it preying on? What does this predator prey on? It preys on weakness in emotion. It preys on weakness in logic. It preys on all kinds of things. And so it's kind of like the last truth-seeking place because I would argue, particularly after the COVID time, I would say that one of the biggest victims of COVID was the truth. Like it's really hard to get to the truth. And so that's the one last thing I would say is I'm going to remember this may become the title of this episode, which is, you know, the market is a predator. Yep. So now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and tell us your story. And I have a feeling that there's going to be some predator in this story. Take it away. So, uh, so I've had so many, you know, if you've survived doing what I do for 35 years, mind you, without having a finance background, I never took a formal class in finance ever. I came from theoretical physics into finance in 1991-92 on a trading desk. I had never seen a bond futures contract before in my life. And I was told at the derivatives desk at Citibank, and I was, by the way, I was thinking only of doing that for maybe six months to a year before going and becoming a postdoc in physics. And the only reason I came was seemed like a good sabbatical to have. And, and there were some other accidents that happened along the way. I was interviewed by Fisher Black. I didn't have any idea who Fisher Black was. But at, uh, long story short, I started at Citibank in 1992, 93. And if you remember, in 1987, we had the big stock market crash and the Fed eased very aggressively. They created a lot of stimulus, not unlike what's happening today. And we call that the flash crash, right? Uh, Yeah, the the 1987 flash crash or the stock market crash for the serious crash. So they, you know, they they, they eased quite aggressively. When I joined finance in late 1992, early 1993, I was basically participating in a bull market that had been caused by extremely easy central bank policy. And at that time, probably the easiest trade to do was to just buy anything like it was the last few years, buy fixed income, buy stocks, whatever, and it would go up. And I remember um, we were at some dinner in late 1993, and everybody in that room was long or held a pretty significant long position on Eurodollar futures contracts, basically betting that interest rates would go down. And that should have been a signal that something was amiss, something was crowded. But as a young trader, seeing everything was going up, I also got slightly long, not very much. And then as a surprise, the Fed got a little worried. In February of 1994, they raised interest rates by 25 basis points. Nothing happened really, but the treasury market started to fall. I thought it was a good time to buy, so I stood in front of it. I bought some bond futures contract, and they raised again, I think in maybe March or so, 25, and markets fell a little bit more. And then they came in and did something very interesting. I think they made a very hawkish statement in April, I think. And then remember in May, they made an intermediate interest rate increase of 50 basis points. And I still thought it was a good time to buy. 
So I kept stepping in front of this freight train bond market, thinking that obviously I was at least as smart, maybe smarter than the rest of the bond market, and basically got run over by that freight train. And at some point during that trade, I realized that the world had changed, that the world moves in cycles. We had gone from multiple years of easing to a tightening cycle where it doesn't really matter how smart you are. It results in a lot of things blowing up. And if you stand in the way of this freight train, you're going to get run over. So it was a great educational experience after you know creating a seriously nice, nice little dent in my young trader PL. I was able to, I think, make most of it back by flipping and going with the trend, going with the crowds. So, you know, it's probably not the worst trade in PL terms because I didn't have a big risk limit at the time. But in terms of the education that I got on economic cycles, central bank policy, market participants exiting all at the same time. It was probably one of the best lessons. And by the way, if you remember during that time, some of you have read the story and maybe followed the markets. That was when my current county where I live, which is Orange County, California, went bankrupt because mm-hmm. they lost about a billion and a half dollars, which was large enough at that time to put the county into bankruptcy because the treasurer was basically running a highly levered carry trade, which was exactly opposite of what you should have been doing as the Fed raises rates. But, you know, I'll stop there for a second Mm, because there's a lot of parallels uh, with what's going on today. Yeah, Yeah. it's interesting because I started my career in January of, well, let's say in September of 1993. And by January of 1994, the market was at its peak here in Thailand. And it's yet to get back to its prior peak. But, you know, as interest rates start tightening, you know, things start changing as we've seen in the current situation. And how, you know, the first thing I was just thinking about is like, it raises such a challenge because it makes you think, okay, so I just go with the flow? Am I supposed to come up with an idea that's going to go against consensus? And when do I abandon that idea and just go with the flow? which is part of what I'm, you know, was thinking about when you went through it, but maybe you could just summarize how you would describe the lessons that you learned. Yeah. So I think it's always good. I think in finance is always good to have an original idea, original thought, because that's how real value is created by being different. So you never want to follow a trend and a herd blindly, but at the same time, you have to understand that markets are made out of participants who are humans with their foibles, with their psychological biases, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's all about, ultimately, it's all about timing. At what time and with what confidence can you say that your idea is the idea that the market or the herd, if you want to call it that, is going to adopt? And you know, other much smarter people than me are much more successful investors than me, like George Soros have said, you know, the trick here is to find what the trend is, get on the trend, and then get off the trend before everybody else realizes that the trend is finishing. And I think that there's a lot of truth to it. And so the big lesson here for me is first, you've got to be very humble. You've got to be very disciplined with your loss thresholds and your risk limits and so on, which fortunately I was. And then lastly, you need to have a framework within which you operate, which says, you know, there are certain types of signals that are consistent with my thinking are not consistent. And if they're not consistent, 
then I'm just not going to participate. And that, this is where another great investor, you know, Warren Buffett has said, it always pays to be patient. It always pays to wait until you know that what you see is not being contradicted by the market and you have a high degree of likelihood that until the market changes its view, you have a high degree of confidence that it's going to be a profitable trade. So maybe I'll share some of my thoughts on what you've just said in your story. I think there's so many different things that you've said that I think are interesting that I've been taking notes. The first is that this the market is a predator. The second thing that you just said was original ideas create value. That's such a critical thing for everybody to think about, whether that's in the market or in life. Ultimately, original ideas create value. But the third thing that you said that I thought was fascinating is markets are made by humans. And it's a totally human construct. And so it can, you know, you never know which way it can go. And then I, I just took a note when you were talking, thinking about kind of the value of trends and trend following and don't get too hooked on your creative idea because, you know, it may not be time right now or whatever. And then the last thing I took is you said, have a framework. And then I wrote down and follow it. And I use a framework called FVMR and I, I developed this many years ago because I found as, a, as an analyst looking at individual stocks, I would get really excited about a particular stock and then it wouldn't move even though it was cheap. And I was like, you know, wait a minute. So, so valuation is not the only factor that is that I should be considering. So I look at fundamentals, valuation, momentum, and risk, which I call FVMR. And it's the momentum part that really helps me a lot because momentum tells me if, you know, for instance, to give a good example, I, about a year ago in our strategies here for our clients in Thailand, I basically was convinced the Fed is not going to raise interest rates by, you know, 100, 200, 300, 400, 500 basis points. You know, it is not going to happen. They're not that dumb, you know. Well, it turns out it wasn't them that was that dumb. It was me for thinking that. So I had a position initially thinking that they weren't going to do it. But because I have a framework and I follow it, momentum was going against my trade. And eventually I had to switch. And I did switch pretty quickly and momentum helped me to get out of it. So, and I would say, I'm not catching the the bottom and I'm not catching the peak. Like you've talked about what Soros said. So I think that final one, so markets, a predator, original ideas, create value markets are made by humans and have a framework and follow it. Is there anything you would add to that? No, I think that's it. I think, I mean, the only thing I would add to it is the, you know, the markets are very demanding and for anybody to survive in the markets. I think the best kept secret I have, at least it works for me, is you need to take care of everything about yourself, your mind, your body, your health, because it's a very competitive game, sport, whatever, and profession, indeed, for me. To survive in it, you need to be basically on your A game all the time. Mm -hmm. And if you're not, those other four things that we mentioned probably not going to help you very much because then you won't be able to execute upon what you need to execute upon. So to those four, I'd add that is try to take care of the whole you because it really does matter on how you survive or not survive, you know, in this marketplace zoo. Great, yeah. great advice. And I think I'm getting close to 60 now and I had some young people that had seen me many years ago and I saw them a couple of days ago and they said something that people often say, which is, 
you look the same, you know, you haven't really aged. Well, of course, that's the benefit of going bald, right? At a young age, because, you know, basically you look old then. And then, you know, but they asked me about it. And I just said, look, I, I sleep well, I go to bed early and I exercise pretty much every day and I eat healthy. I don't drink alcohol and I don't do drugs and things like that. And I eat very healthy food. And so it's like when you bring together nutrition and sleep and exercise, and also I don't have stress in my life. I removed stress a long time ago. I don't use the word stress when I learned that it was such a dangerous word. So I replaced the word stress with pressure. And so I can handle pressure, but stress kills. So I, I try to understand that. So to keep emotionally fit, also when I get hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, I talk to somebody, you know, so I think the point is, is that if you take care of your whole self, you're going to be in great shape. So let me ask you, what's a resource that you'd recommend for our listeners? Oh, I mean, there are so many resources depending on what dimension of your life and of your work and profession you're looking at. I think for today's topic, which is you know more about risk management and you know kind of managing yourself, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's on our website longtailalpha.com you can go and look at look at there but there's also a lot of other authors you know you know great books so i won't pick one mm. particular paper or book or text but i would highly advise people at this stage of the game to you know maybe abandon some of the preconceptions about how stock markets or bond markets work and just go back and just do some honest independent research on what risk management means for themselves as an individual. What is risk for themselves? There's a great book I, I read by um, some psychologists recently on this concept of the feeling of risk. I think it's Paul Slovic or one of the famous psychologists in financial risk. That's a great book. I would recommend people reading it because it tells you that risk is not just quantitative modeling. It's not just looking at probability distributions and option prices and all that. There's something about just how you feel about not being positioned at the right place at the right time and the right size. So mm. uh, many resources in that topic. Do you uh, remember the what the name of the book or the author? Yeah, it's called The Feeling of Risk by Paul Slovic, but I'll text it to you later on. Yep, email yep. too. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll have that plus your books and your website in the in the show notes. So let me ask you one last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? I think to mostly to stay healthy. And I think, you know, what's happening here is uh, I am fairly healthy. The markets are changing. We're going undergoing a regime shift. And for our investors and for our portfolios, what we would like to do is as this regime shift accelerates, we want to be very disciplined position on the right side and deliver the kind of performance that we think we can deliver with the kind of strategies we have. So we're very focused on really paying attention to these, you know, big once in a career or maybe once in a decade type of regime shifts that happen and make sure that we're focused and we can take advantage of them. Mm. Well, 
Listeners, there you have it, another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. If you've not yet joined that mission, just go to myworstinvestmentever.com and join my weekly free Become a Better Investor newsletter to reduce risk in your life. As we conclude, Veneer, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of ASTOTS Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? No, good luck and uh, take care of yourselves and stay healthy and be passionate about what you do. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today. We added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.